What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast, episode number 239. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Eichbrett. And joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's going on, dude? Oh, you know, just battling exhaustion, but, you know, it's the fishing life. So it's 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 pretty grand. It's the wise you. words of my father, suck it up, buttercup. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> hey, all I want to say, it's better to be exhausted and being a full-time guy than being stuck in that bank job here. Yeah, that's that is true. I'm I'm in a much better like mental place. So Andy's always happy, but this is a different version of Andy. Andy's now stress-free for the most part. Yeah, it's it's pretty great feeling today. I was doing my subcontracted pharmaceutical delivery drive, and I think I drove like 210 miles. Just dropping off narcotics in nursing homes, so it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's like, what do I have in here today? Because <laughs> I don't know until like <laughs> they open it and sign it, and I'm like, oh, that's some pretty bad stuff. Like, good luck <laughs> to those old ladies having to take that and sleep all the time. Those poor things. <laughs> Tyler agrees. He says you just set it up. Speaking of Tyler, I hope his back is doing better. He might be fishing with us Saturday, so that'll be good to see him after. His he said, uh, he's bad. Yeah. Yeah. He said he'd see us there. So hopefully we do. And hopefully we spank you in the, in the tournament. I don't know I've never been to the lower. I've never been there. It's That'll fun. be a first for me. It's fun. When it's on. Yeah. So, so speaking of tournaments, and uh, we will get into this a little bit deeper after our episode today. Uh, which for those obviously tuning in, we have Andrew Upshaw joining us tonight. We have a really cool episode. We're going to dive into a uh, very interesting topic that uh, is actually kind of relevant. You know, I thought about this last week when we were talking with Andrew to get him on the show, and just so happened that this weekend's tournaments for both Andrew and I, uh, I say Andrew, but Andy, uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Exactly is planned. I will, I will try to say Andy throughout the episode so that you guys can specify between the two Andrews. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very relevant to our past weekend. Um, it was pretty brutal. Uh, I think... You know, Andrew had uh, – I see, I'm already doing it. I'll say the captain uh, had expected go. a much bigger bag. You guys had – you and Destin had an insane practice uh, in terms of finding some high percentage areas. And uh, I was in – with my tournament, I was doing something really awesome. I was, I was punching mats with New York in mid-September, which is pretty fun, and was in third place in day one. Day two fell to tenth. So – that's a whole other story that we'll get into at the end of this episode. We won't take up too much time because we want to get Andrew uh, on the show here. Uh, but I think there's a couple things um, we need to go over, and that is just some quick announcements. And it's that uh, tomorrow we're going to be running another Hobie Eyewear giveaway. So stay tuned to the Instagram. Uh, we'll be posting it up, kind of rules to get in, win yourself. Like really easy just to win some free nice shades from, from Hobie Eyewear. Um, Love mine. They're incredible. Oh, yeah. Site Master Pluses can't beat them. I, I actually, uh, Deacon, um, one of his buddies, he was standing with Hugh and, and Alex Redwine. It was Alex Redwine just made the Elite Series, um, and he was showing them the Site Masters, and they were trying to snag them from him because I guess they had some shallow patterns for the opens, and they're like, we need these. So a little selfless plug for Hobie Iowa, which is pretty cool. Those Site Masters are ridiculous. Um, but other than that, we got a video coming out on the YouTube tomorrow. Uh, Andrew and I's tournament video from a little while back, um, catching a whole bunch of largemouth. But uh, you dude, you got anything? Epic before? meltdown in there, did you? 
Uh, I'm actually still in the midst of editing it. It's been a long day getting back home yeah. and trying to get caught up in work. So uh, now that you say it, I definitely will. <laughs> Just put it in the opening credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll be just a start. <laughs> but I think, dude, without further ado, we need to bring him on here. Mr. Andrew Upshaw. What's going on, dude? Uh, not much. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Just uh, having so much fun at Lake Dorman here in North Carolina. Just I, I can't imagine having any more fun than what I'm having right now. So <laughs> oh, I don't sense any sarcasm. In that no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm far from sarcastic. I, I've never been one of those people, so it's all good. <laughs> what do you, uh, speaking of Norman, what do you think it's going to take a day to one, get a uh, cash check and then two top 10? Oh, cash check. I have no idea. Cause it's, uh, the, the fishing is not very good. Um, when you come to the South, and that fall transition, that's late summer fall transition, it can be really, really tough. And that is exactly what we're dealing with here. And the fact is, is Norman is coming off like three, three weekends of big tournaments. So it, it's going to make it even tougher. Uh, so uh, I, I think that if you can catch about eight pounds, eight, yeah, about eight pounds a day, you're probably going to get paid or per, pretty close. Ooh. And uh, and if you can somehow catch you about ten a day to eleven a day, you're gonna make the top ten. And if you can catch about twelve to around that a day, you're gonna win. So, damn, it's bad. <laughs> it's it's a lot different than, than coming from St. Lawrence River. I can promise you that. That's like some uh, Sabine River weights right there. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> It, it has a lot of spotted bass in it, and right now they're long and lean and tiny, and so that it makes it really tough. So. Good grief. Mm. Well, I, I hope here. you guys have a good tournament. I was talking with Pangrek today, and he had something very similar to that. <laughs> very low weights. And yeah, it, it's just it's just not good. I mean, it. the nice thing about it, though, is this is – when you look at points for the Bassmaster Opens and trying to make the Elite Series and things, I really like these particular tournaments because a lot of times it causes a big flip-flop as far as points go. There's going to be 200 boats in this tournament, so that absolutely opens that up uh, quite a bit. So it makes it a lot more fun and a lot easier to to make up ground. You know, I had a little blunder there at the St. Lawrence, so it allows me to try to possibly make up points if I have a good tournament. So, Heck yeah. Obviously, we're going to get into that a little bit. Um, you know, that's kind of the premise of this episode. We're going to be talking about, you know, bigger field tournaments and how to, you know, practice, how to, to how to strategize your practice around, like, I mean, at Oneida, you were there. It was 200 boats. It was what? It was over 200, wasn't it? Was it like 208 sure. or something like that. Yeah. Something I mean, insane. The league is terrible. Yeah, it was yeah, terrible. It was, Brutal. But basically, we're going to kind of get into kind of how to strategize your research, your practice, and your tournament for a, a big boat field like that. Um, but before we get into that, dude, obviously, it's your first time on the show. And something that uh, Andy and I like to do is kind of get a background of how you started, because everyone always likes to hear the story of how people got started fishing. Um, so kind of like take us back to the beginning of when you caught your first bass. Like, who got you into it? How'd you get into it? Full nine yards. You know, uh, I guess... To take it back all the way, um, I hadn't really ever really talked about that very much. I mean, I'd talk about, like, starting bass fishing and things like that, but uh, 
I was I remember one moment very vividly. My brother and my dad were bass fishing, and I was really really young. I was I think it was like second grade, and all I cared about was just netting uh, minnows. I, that's all I wanted to do is just net minnows the entire time. I wasn't technically fishing, but um, I went to go net a catfish that I saw floating on the water. I was like, heck yeah, I'm going to catch this big catfish. What well, had was attached to a about a three and a half to four foot water moccasin. And, um, and it was very interesting because I, I want to say a few times after that, it was so intriguing. We ended up killing the water moccasin because it came up on the, the land. But we, uh, after that, I went a, a few weeks later, I went fishing with my dad and I was just throwing a bobber and, and caught some nice crappie and just kind of hooked me from there. But even then I wasn't really hooked until I moved to Toledo Bend when I was younger, uh, I want to say like sixth grade, seventh grade, and I just started fishing. We actually went white bass fishing, and I started fishing off the bank, and that was so much fun. And uh, and just kind of went from there. I went fishing with Tommy Martin, uh, uh, Bassmaster Classic champ. My dad actually coached both of his boys. Uh, my dad was a head football coach, and so he coached both uh, Brian uh, Martin and Blake Martin there in Hempel and so Tommy took me fishing which was like the coolest thing ever and literally like three weeks before I, I found out I was going fishing with him and all I was cash, casting was like a Zepco but I didn't want to embarrass myself so I literally in three weeks learned how to cast a bait casting reel all on my own just so I wouldn't embarrass it uh, too bad so uh, it you know that kind of just exploded everything and you know I got in school and and uh, kind of went from there so did you play football growing up? I did. I was uh, I was a hardcore football player. I uh, I, I was even uh, blessed enough to actually play in college a little bit. Uh, and uh, after about four knee surgeries, I'm just about done with that. <laughs> so I hear that. that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very good reason. I, I'm gonna tell you right now, it was uh, my son, and, and and I'm getting ready to post a video. I, I hope he's watching. I'm not sure if he is, but. He had his very first football game over the weekend. He's only he's only six years old, and he's in first grade, and he's tiny. Uh, but he's literally the fastest kid I've ever seen at that age. And he's beating third graders in races. I mean, he's just blazing fast. And I'm like, golly, why wasn't I that athletic when I was a kid? I mean, I was fast. I was always really fast, but that kid's next level. It's 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 fun to watch him, and I missed his first game, and it just tore me apart not being able to see him. But uh, he is really he, – he takes after his mom and his dad. We're, we were both speedsters growing up, and I know he'd blow our doors off if he went race us now. So, oh, now so you're saying he's fishing. the next yeah. – Oh, he loves to fish, uh, absolutely. And he's way – like he's one of those kids that like everybody can be talking to him, and he's so super focused on what he does. Uh, it's, it's really cool to watch. And, and I, you know, I never had that dream of being a dad or anything like that, but, uh, I can tell you, he is the coolest kid ever. Like no doubt. The next Christian McCaffrey. Uh, That would be (laughs) awesome. But I mean, I, I, unfortunately his mom's short, I'm short. I I mean, he better be real, real fast if he's going to be something like that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I think with Chris McCaffrey is only like 5'10". I think he's okay. Yeah, but I'm only like 5'8", so <laughs> he, he didn't come from big, tall gene lines. I can just tell you hey, that. Hey, Darren Sproles had a long career in the NFL, and he's like 5'5". 
So yeah, there is that. I think he'll be okay. Yeah, he, he <laughs> might be. He might be. There's always a chance. <laughs> uh, we have a question here from our good buddy John King. <laughs> I don't know where he's coming with this, but he said, "Does Matt Pangrak have a name for his Traeger? If not, what should it be?" <laughs> I don't know if there's an inside joke there or not, I but I figured we'd throw it up there. <laughs> yeah, but, no, no, I, there's no telling. <laughs> well, dude, uh, you know, talk, getting back to kind of like your roots, uh, when did uh, when did you start fishing tournaments? How did you kind of get introduced to that? Um, I actually started, golly, I don't even remember what my first tournament was. Um, but, oh, I remember what it was. I started in a club there in my neighborhood we had this like neighborhood club that was only like 10 members and we'd have a tournament every you know month or two and i started fishing with that and first one i ever fished i got second place and i think the next one i fished i won and i I got really hooked on the club deal and i was like what else can i fish how can i make more money because I was about money. I mean, like, I was a kid. I was 16 years old, 15 years old. So I just wanted to figure out a way to do that. Uh-oh, we got an echo. Yeah, hold on. My headphones died. Let me – you you keep talking. I'm going to mute myself for a second. All right. And, and um, I, I just wanted to figure out more ways to, to make money. So I started fishing all these different tournaments and stuff. And, and uh, I fished a few team tournaments and, and decided to jump into the BFLs and – and uh, I fished a co-angler once, and, you know, the deal is, is I didn't know anything about co-angling. I didn't know anything about that stuff. Well, I jumped in the back of a guy's boat, and I'd practiced hard for that tournament. And I'd found some really big fish, and the guy decided he wasn't going to go to them about 11 or 12 o'clock when we had one apiece. And I was like, man, they're really big ones, and they're like one mile that way. And he refused to go, and he was like, if you want to fish as a pro, you just sign up as one. And I was like, okay. And the next the next tournament, I signed up as a pro and got second in the BFL. And it just kind of catapulted me into where I'm at today. I mean, I I started fishing. And, you know, I told all my teachers in high school, I was like, I want to go fish professionally when I grow up. And everybody kind of laughed. And, I mean, heck, I even laugh sometimes. But, um, and then and then it all just worked out. Just I mean, I just kept put my head down and tried to outwork everybody. So, it's a good. Do you guys hear me? Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, headphones died. Totally forgot that you're supposed to charge these things. Um, I think I've been running on like three days of not charging. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's it's pretty cool to kind of see where you went. And then, you know, when was it that you got into the FLW? And FL, it was a tour, right? Yeah, the tour. I. Um... So fast forward a little while, I fished through college, uh, fished at Stephen F. Austin State University there in Nacogdoches, and um, we had, a, a, my partner and I, Ryan Watkins, had a really successful uh, role there in college, and I was fortunate enough to make the Bassmasters Classic in 2012, and I actually qualified for the tour the same year of fishing the Costas, and so I decided to fish the tour, and so it all worked out, and uh, and I fished the tour for i mean like a long time <laughs> it was like eight years and uh and in 2020 i decided to take a different direction went into the bassmaster opens trying to qualify for the elites uh because of the sale of flw to major league fishing so kind of changed gears a little bit kind of redirected my focus and uh and it's been great ever since yeah and, and so this kind of was a great segue into kind of what we're going to talk about 
for the majority of the episode is these these big field tournaments, you know, the opens that you're fishing to try to then therefore qualify for the elite series. And I guess really to kind of kick this off is, you know, like we use as an example, Oneida, you had 200 plus boats. I mean, especially on a lake like Oneida, which some people think is a big lake, but really for those who know Oneida is that fish is very small. Like uh, especially thumb. for what? It's like the size of a thumb compared yeah, to other tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess really to start is like, you know, when you know that there's going to be a lake where there's not going to be a lot of space and you know, you're going to be a lot of, uh, around a lot of people. Um, I guess really to start is like when you're doing your research, right. You know, months leading up to, uh, when official practice starts, you get there and you can actually get in the water before that even happens. You're doing your map study, you're doing research or whatever. It's YouTube, historical data, whatever, you know, how much do you factor in, the size of the field for that tournament into your preliminary research? You know, so there was, we'll just use Oneida as an example, because I could go on for days about that, uh, because everybody of water is different. Um, you know, somebody is a water is like an Lake Erie, you know, you, you can spread out and it, but you know, we all know that like on the Western basin of Lake Erie, you can't really spread out that. I mean, you can, but you can't. It kind of fishes small to a certain level for catching bigger fish, unless you're just a local and you know all these little secret little rock piles and things. Uh, but everybody kind of gravitates to Peely Island, you know. And but in the case of Oneida, what I did is the, the first thing I did is I, I made a basically a big old loop around the lake, uh, which. I mean, it actually took some time because if you try to run the bank around the lake, you kind of see, I mean, it takes, I think it's like 20 miles long, it's basically. 22, yeah. It's like, 20, like 22. So I ran like a big loop around the lake just to kind of see everything. And I started realizing where everybody was fishing. And once I realized where everybody was fishing, I decided to kind of stay away from where everybody was fishing. A lot of times you can break down water by just looking where everybody is and not saying Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to go over there and fish where they're at because there's fish there, I'm going to say, well, there, all these six or 10 or 20 boats are here. I'm going to go that way. And um, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. In the case of Oneida, it worked to a certain level. I did end up having to catch them. Um, I ended up catching most of mine out on Shackleton. Uh, but the thing that I did that most people didn't, because there wasn't very many boats out there, and it's because it was so windy. I was I put myself in a position of fishing out in the most brutal conditions, you know, extremely hard winds, big waves, uh, while everybody tried to shelter in coves and pockets and bays and on grass lines and you know, and I just didn't do that. I just I went for it, uh, and I think in a in a tournament like that, you kind of have to go for it sometimes. Yeah, uh, That's it's a great point. Yeah, I think day one it was like. It was ripping. I think it was. It was what I was both days. It was both days was just bad. I mean, it was just terrible. I mean, you couldn't ask for worse conditions for that tournament. No doubt about it. Yeah, I think day one was like fifteen to twenty out of the west, and then it was just completely Ooh. opposite on day two out of the east. And yeah, and it was day, like fifteen to twenty out of the east. Yeah, day one was pouring rain, and day two was like colder, and then bluebird. It was just like you got the whole roller coaster when you. It seems like it always happens, like the week leading up to these tournaments, you get like the most stable and amazing weather, and then tournament happens, and it's always ridiculous. Yeah, it, Joe's right. It was opposite. I think it was a west or a, and yeah, it was a west win on day one, and an east win on day two. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was coming yeah, towards, yeah, West State too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. It was coming towards Union Union or not Union, I'm thinking of KU. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, the night of Shores, yeah, yeah. they won. Okay. And, and it was it was just nasty out there. I mean, and it was really weird cuz so what I did at uh Shackleton um I ended up uh, I I kind of realized I, I caught a couple nice ones out there in practice and I realized the potential and I knew there was going to be a bunch of boats. I mean, you'd go out there on a calm day, and there'd be 100 boats out there. It was insane. And maybe not that many. I'm exaggerating slightly. But, I mean, there were still like 40. Pretty close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a bunch of boats. <laughs> so what I did is I graphed literally the entire Shackleton Shoal, every square inch of that thing. And I tried to find every little sneaky rock pile uh one big boulder whatever it was and i had i promise you i had 500 waypoints across that thing i mean it was ridiculous the amount of waypoints and i kind of had everything lined up to where no matter what direction the wind blew i kind of had different lineups and drifts and and targets that i could hit and i really think if i'd had a calm day i could have caught a real big bag out there or calmer day uh and um it just didn't work out that way, obviously. But I still had a chance on the second day to catch a really big bag. So I put myself in the potential in the, the situation to catch a really big bag. I just jumped off some really big ones on that second day. Uh, but I still caught a bigger bag on the second day than I did the first day. But, you know, I at least got to see, you know, all that hard work kind of come into to play uh, there towards the end of the tournament. But to answer your question, when you get in a big boat field, you, you have two options. You can either go the other direction everybody else is, but if you do stay where everybody else is, like, so if there's a big group of boats and that's just, like, where you need to be, you need to break it down way better than they are. Uh, that That is the number one thing you can do. So, and then in that case, kind of, is it what you lean toward, like, depending on more on your electronics to kind of set yourself apart and putting in the time versus – you know, time on, on the front deck and actually fishing or, you know, how do it, I guess it probably depends on where you're fishing, but like, yeah. How, how do you normally enjoy, I guess in general, generally speaking, try to set yourself apart? Well, you, you kind of, the one thing about that is you always have to play to your strengths. Um, if your strengths are electronics and reading your electronics and graphing and finding those little sneaky places and paying attention to those small little details, that's what you need to do. And sometimes it's a technique that you're like, you know what? I know not everybody out here is really good at this and I'm the best at this, whether or not you are. But if you feel like you're the best at that, you need to focus on that one thing. Too many times we, we listen to Doc talk and say, oh, well, so-and-so caught him on this. Like, for instance, Matt was destroying them on a drop shot at uh, at Oneida, and I absolutely couldn't get a bite on a drop shot. And it didn't matter what I threw. I just could not catch them on a drop shot, but I could catch them on smaller, like a, a Ned rig, a tube, anything on the bottom. Uh, and that really was the difference, is I really tried to target the fish that people didn't see on live scope and things like that. You know, the ones that nobody could see that were tucked down in boulders and stuff. And that's, and I think that was kind of a part of the advantage. When you graph over it, you never saw a fish. All you saw was some rock. And, and even when you're looking at where your forward facing sonar, you couldn't see it. So I think that was a big player as well. Right. I mean, and in these kind of tournaments, right, where there's, you know, you mentioned how, like, when you were practicing, you did a ride around the lake, just kind of more going to get a gist of, like, where people are going to be, right? Trying to, 
you know, find areas where there's going to be less boats. And, and does that mean you kind of like straight towards not really trying to find, I shouldn't say off the wall stuff, but trying to find stuff more out of the ordinary from folks, or is it more of just trying to find an area with less pressure, but still doing the same, I guess, generic patterns. Well, yeah, you know, the deal is that especially smallmouth, we're, we're talking about a smallmouth lake here at Oneida, pressure tends to shift fish around no matter where you're at a lot of times you know like if everybody's fishing that same dock nine times out of ten those fish are going to leave that dock and go to a different dock or they'll set up differently they'll set up on the rock behind the dock or you know whatever it is And in the case of smallmouth if i saw 30 boats on the west end of shackleton i went to the east end of shackleton and 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 vice versa if i saw everybody on the east end i went to the west end i always tried to play boat positioning and how everybody was uh, positioned on the shoal or anywhere on the lake to my advantage. You know, if I saw a bunch of boats on a grass line that had a little bit of rock on it, I'd go to the other side of the grass line that had maybe not as much rock. Maybe it wasn't as luxurious and people were like, man, that one's just the crappy side. The crappy side a lot of times is where those fish are going to shift to when there's 10 boats on the other side. And that a lot of times, if you pay, like, if you pay attention to how people position and how people fish, you can always outperform them by just paying attention to how they're fishing and do something different. Uh, and that, and that's what I was doing as I was really so focused on, on really doing different stuff than what my competitors were. Because if, if I just did the same thing, I mean, let, let's face it. A guy, uh, the the guy who won, and he wasn't out in Shackleton, but let's just say, for instance, he's out there. He know he's forgotten more about Oneida than I ever known. I've never even been there until this year, and so I mean, it's just I had to show up and and try to beat the best ones on the lake. And and in that situation, I tried to learn everything I could about a three mile shoal, and I did. And I feel like if I went back to that shoal, no questions asked, I'd catch him again. Yeah, the guy that won is actually he's an insane hammer around these parts of here in New York. He wants, he just wins about almost every tournament he, he fishes locally. It doesn't matter the lake around here. So it's yeah, yeah. to, to stick with him is a big deal. A week Especially after he right won that open, he won ten grand on like a finger lake. Oh, this is a week or two later. Yeah, just showed up yeah. and whomped everyone. Yeah. He's, well, rolling, yeah. he's rolling the dough locally this year. <laughs> well, and, and you have guys like that. You have guys that are just unbelievable, mm-hmm. uh, you know, local anglers. And, and Joe actually asked a question. He said, so timing becomes really key then. Timing is everything in bass fishing. Uh, paying attention when you catch a fish in certain places can mean the difference between catching them and not catching them. I mean, that is a true statement. You know, uh, let's just say, for instance, here in North Carolina, I know it's not New York or somewhere like that. You know, if I go throw a topwater in the morning, which say I'm throwing a buzz bait, and and I'm catching them between 6 and 7. Well, if I decide I'm going to go there at 10 o'clock, the sun is a different angle. Things aren't set up. So by paying attention, I know that's kind of a vague one, but that can apply to so many different techniques and so many different areas. If you pay attention, you're saying, okay, I was at that spot at 7 o'clock and they bit. Well, I went there at 10 and they didn't bite. So if you pay attention to that stuff, it'll really help you out. Yeah, and that actually, it's a great point because, like, what Andrew and I are going to talk about in the, after after this, like, when we let you go, is our tournament this past weekend. And, you know, basically the only efficient pattern I had going was punching grass mats, especially ones that had cheese on it because this time of year they're going to retain more heat. And literally could only happen 
until it wouldn't turn on until 1030. We're getting a guest host from my fiance here. Um, literally, it would only happen. You would turn on 10, 30, 11 o'clock when there was enough sun to actually generate enough heat. But it's that's like it plays in the timing deal where I literally would waste five hours of the day not knowing what the heck to do because I didn't have another pattern beyond those mats. I couldn't catch a fish until it was 10, 30 or 11 o'clock. But that's it, it, another example of, you know, timing is key. And that really is what I have one of my questions here to you is, you know, how do you – you know, and it's just, this is jumping ahead. You know, we are going to circle back, but if we're on the topic, I might as well ask. Um, you know, when you have your practice and you and you get into your tournament day, like how do you go about scheduling your day? Like, say maybe it's the last day of practice, right? You got to be off the water, say two o'clock. Maybe twelve thirty, you find a really good deal. You know, whatever it may be, right? You but you find it at twelve thirty, and it's like winning fish but you don't know if that's because it's a t- an afternoon bite. Like, how do you know if you should start there or not? How do you know if it's just, I should come back in the afternoon? If, if that question makes sense at all. No, that makes sense. You know, and, and sometimes it's a high risk, high reward in a situation like that, you know, and I've been in that situation more times than I can count. I mean, like, like for instance, uh, here at Lake Norman, you know, I might find the very best dock in the world and it, I might get 10 bites off of it at 1230. Well, if I fish it at 7 o'clock in the morning, I might not get a bite, but I might. And that's the difference between guys like Brandon Polinick and Scott Martin and guys like me because they win more tournaments than I do. <laughs> they make those decisions better than I do sometimes. Um, you know, some people will call that swinging for the fence, you know, going and, and, and fishing a spot and catching them. But a calculated uh, risk. It, it is, and you got to be smart, though. You know, like it, it's a dock. Like if I had a dock that was so good, I'm probably still not going to start on it because maybe they were on a shade line. You know, you have to look past just the fact that you got bites. You got to say, okay, why did I get those bites? And if you can answer the question as to why, that will really help you. Now, sometimes you can't answer that question. Like smallmouth, why were they on that rock pile? I don't know. They were just living on it. You know, I mean, it's just, you don't know. Are they gone an hour later? Yeah. And now they, I can't see them for like two weeks, but now they're back. You know, it is definitely, uh, that that's the difference between guys who win and don't, you know, the right. ones that can make that decision the best. Truthfully, when it comes to my tournament fishing, you know, I, I honestly, I don't really look at what I didn't practice. I really go out there and say, okay, today's a new day. What conditions are I'm dealing with today? What did I see in practice that was maybe similar to this? We'll say, for instance, Lake Norman coming up. You talk about weather changes. We have a massive weather change coming, and that is a massive cold front uh, that's about to start swinging through the next few days. And I think our highs are going to be like in the 70s when it's been like high 90 or high 80s, low 90s, and our lows are going to be in the 50s at night. Bluebird skies. That that is a hundred percent different weather condition than we've had the entire practice. So, you know, is my practice irrelevant? No, not at all. Uh, you know, I found places that have fish on them. You know, I found spotted bass. I found largemouth. But are they all going to bite with that particular condition? No, absolutely not. And to know that right off the bat makes things way easier because I'm like, okay, if I run there, if I don't get a bite, whatever. It's just the day. And, and I can adjust as the day goes on. Instead of just fishing spots, I'm fishing the condition. And anytime you can fish the condition, you're always going to be better. 
Can you guys hear me okay? I, Joe in the chat said I had an echo. Am I echoing to you guys? Right it was now echoing when I was talking. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you're okay. Um, that, that's a great segue into uh, Hello Bass. Our buddy Rich Lindgren has a question here, and he's asking if – are you going to focus on spots or largies or a mixed approach at Norman? You know, I'm going to focus on anything that bites at Norman, if I'm being honest. Uh, a and a half. <laughs> dude, I mean, it's just bad. I, I don't know if there's really a really good way to target um, largemouth specifically, but I'm going to just gonna try to catch whatever I can get to bite. I, I've got fish from 40 foot of water uh, all the way to four foot of water, and I'm going to try to do my best to catch every one of them. So. Heck yeah. Uh, so circling back real quick, I know because I mentioned we jumped ahead, you know, kind of your tournament strategy, um, but looking at practice, I mean, say, you know, we, we keep using Oneida as an example, but I guess for any fishery where you know pressure is going to be a factor uh, with the number of boats, um, do you try to make it an effort to try like maybe some, like try to be unique in your bait selection that you're throwing if you know you're going to be around people or do you kind of still stick to your confidence in what you know you can, like what you've been getting bit on in practice? Do you try to find anything kind of, you know, more in that mindset of no one else is going to throw this. I'm going to try it. Oh yeah. I do that a lot. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I'm have like 18 rods on the deck and I'm not comfortable unless I have that many. Uh, I like to have a lot of variety. I'm the guy that also wakes up at two in the morning and just go ties on a different bait. Um, it's just, I think the more open you can keep yourself, the more successful you're going to be on the water. If you get so close, there's certain situations where you need to be closed-minded. When I won at Cherokee, I was very closed-minded. I was so focused, laser-focused on flipping a wacky rig, and it worked out, and I ended up. But even then, on the final day, I caught two of my biggest fish in the last 15 minutes on a, uh, a rage swimmer out there off off a deep point that I'd found uh, the second day of the tournament. I actually found the fish on the second day of the tournament. So you have to really, you, you have to close yourself off sometimes. And sometimes you just got to say, okay, what am I dealing with? How can I catch bass? And the more successful you can be like that, if you can just say, okay, that point looks good. That dock looks good. Who gives a crap what happened in practice? I'm just going to go fish what I'm dealing with right this second. And, and quit second guessing yourself. I'd, I'd still do it from time to time, but you look at guys like Wheeler, uh, Jordan Lee, those guys that are just like, they're like, Oh, okay. Um, this looks like a good topwater day. Even though I didn't get a topwater bite the entire practice, I'm going to pick up a topwater and see what happens. And they end up busting them. It's just those little minor adjustments, no matter what you did in practice, it does not matter. Fish what you're dealing with today. And you're going to be more successful. Fishing, like you said, fishing the conditions, fishing the moment. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I like um, I get so so moving forward to you know to tournament day. You know what is like the biggest defining factor for you and where you're going to start. You know, it's day one of the tournament, and you know it's the night before, and maybe you don't even make your decision until you're in your boat and you're about to blast off. But what in, what in your mind generally you know helps define where you're going to start. Beyond just anglers. Real quick, I love this question because I suck in the morning because I feel <laughs> like I always make the worst starting uh, spot decision. So I'm very interested to hear your input here. So 
The floor is yours. <laughs> All right. Well, what I look at, oh my gosh, there was a big noise behind me. I didn't know what it was. Um, the when it comes to that, I mean, trying to figure out where to start. There's two trains of thought there. Do I swing? Do I go try to? What, what do you want to do? Do you want to go catch a big bag? Do you want to go catch a limit? Whatever it may be, you have to set clear cut goals. I, I firm believer in setting goals when you're on the water. You know, if your goal is to win the tournament and you're there only to win, not get a check, first or last, Ricky Bobby style, then you need to go start on the nuts and stay on the nuts. Now, if your goal is to do well and to cash a check and try to put yourself in a position to do well, then maybe you should start on a, a spot that has more numbers. Maybe you're not going to catch a big And you know for a fact you're not going to catch a big one. You're like, hey, all that's there is two to two and a half pounders. But if that's what it takes to get your mind right, then that's what you should do. Always put yourself in the most comfortable position you can. There's people who lose their minds, have incredible anxiety when they don't have a limit at 10 o'clock. And if they don't have a limit at ten o'clock, their their wheels are coming off. They are they're done. My it's biggest exciting. advice, yeah. I mean, and, and will ten pounds help you on Erie? Heck, no, it won't. It's not even going to put you like they're going to be like, what are you putting two pounders in your live well for? But if that is what makes you more confident, and that raises your level of confidence, that's what you need to do. <laughs> It's got a funny message from uh, from Pangrak. <laughs> so, he's such a weirdo. I guess it was the loud noise. Yeah, I was, was. going to say, it was, is that the loud noise of Pangrak dropping his Traeger behind you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's – so talking about that, it, it's kind of cool when you look back on, like, the different levels of fishing to see how that mentality changes. So, like, obviously on your local level – very few guys are just going to go for points, right? Mostly everyone's there to either win or whatever, right? They don't really care. It's a, it's a local club turn. And then you get up to, like, your triple A, like the Opens level or, like, the Toyotas, right? And you got guys like yourself that are trying – maybe not going for a win every time, but trying to go for points so that you can ultimately make that next, that top level, the elites, right? So you have, like, a, you have a mix where you have locals that are there that are jackpotting it for the win, Mm-hmm. So you have two different guys going like after two different goals, but then you obviously you get to that top tier level where uh, it's kind of almost the same as the opens. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you got guys that are going out every tournament to swing for a win. And then you got guys going out every tournament just for points to make the classic. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, the same, it's the same thing. I mean, and, and when it comes to kind of figuring out what your mindset is, I mean, yeah, when we're in local tournaments, you want to win. But let's be honest, guys. Like, how many times have you been out there practicing and you are 100% not on the winning side? And you know it. You're like, what I'm on is not going to win. Like, and that and that actually brings up a good question. Do you go fish for those fish and catch your 18 pounds at max or whatever it might be? And that's you know for a fact that's what you're going to catch. Or do you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go do something completely different. I'm the person, now not in the opens, but let's just say local level. 
I'm just going to go do something different. I'm going to treat it as a practice day, and I'm not even going to tie on what I tied on the day before because if that's only going to cage 18 pounds, I don't want no part of it. You know, or I might go graph. I might go graph for five hours. I've literally graphed for five hours in a local tournament during the day. Because why not? Yeah. Like if I go fish that spot over there, I'm gonna catch 15 pounds, and 15 pounds isn't even gonna get a check. Right. You know what am I gaining? So, but in the opens, I found myself plenty of times. Uh, my my biggest fish on day one of um, St. Lawrence was a five and a half. And I never even practiced on that spot. I never fished it. Nothing. I looked at my map when I was on a different spot, and I was like, man, that spot looks really good. I wish I had graphed that in practice. So I just rolled over there, graphed it, saw a boulder, flipped down there, caught a five-and-a-half pounder. It's making those adjustments. And that was on day one. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't on the second or third day, day one. And uh, I, I, that's what I do. I just If I'm not catching them and my stuff isn't working out, I just say, you know what, let's go do something different. Who cares? Scrap it and run. Yep, scrap it and run. And the sooner you do it, the more successful you'll be. I respect that move. And, and Andrew, I'm kind of curious to hear your input on this because uh, I, I, I'd I like to hear your answer to kind of the question that Andrew's put up into, into the air here. And I think it's something where I've grown, I feel like, at least I'm not, you know, talking from a local level. Uh, where I used to start with, like, if I knew fish were there, that's where I'd go and I'd hope for a big bite, whereas now I have the mentality of if I go to practice and I don't get a big bite whatsoever and I know there's not winning fish there, then tournament day I'm just going to do, like you said, just do something completely different. Uh, But I don't have enough of a national, you know, from AAA on experience to know what the heck I would even do on a big tournament level. So, Andrew, I'm actually very curious to hear your input. Well, It's taken years, literal. Um, understanding fish patterns, how fish act, how they react, and, and, and that's a big deal. Um, the The thing that will get you in trouble when you do that, though, unfortunately, is, you know, you bail too fast or you lose confidence too fast. For instance, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Lake Ontario or St. Lawrence. I rolled into a spot on day two. Just rolled up to a buoy and I caught a seven pounder and a five pounder with like an hour left. And I had three fish. And instead of just staying there because I caught them within 10 minutes of one another, instead of just staying there and knowing I'm probably going to finish my limit, but I kind of got cold feet and I rolled to a spot and didn't even make it there because I about ran out of gas. And uh, to just try to catch two more keepers, I panicked. Uh, I made a bad decision. And believe me, I still, even at a national AAA, it doesn't matter. You're going to make bad decisions. You just got to hope that you make enough good decisions to kind of outweigh your bad ones. In that particular event, I made too many bad ones, and it screwed my whole tournament. Um, In the national level, what I've learned is that even that decision – I've got to make it five times faster because those guys are that good. I don't care what league you fish. I don't care if it's the best pro tour, national professional, the pro circuit, the elite series, no matter what, it doesn't matter because everybody's a good fisherman at that level. They all make adjustments fast. They're always on the biggest fish. They're always on the right stuff, and they're always on the juice spots and the whatever spot. You've got to outfish them no matter what. You've got to make adjustments on the fly, no questions asked. 
and most of the time with extremely limited practice, two to two and a half days, three days at most, which I love that because the deal was like, for instance, if I caught them on channel swing banks uh, where it transitions from flat to steep, for instance, and maybe I got three or four bites, instead of going and fishing all those, I just go mark them and say, oh, man, that one looks right. That one looks right. How many times have you pulled up on a spot and you said, man, that is a juice spot. They're going to live there. And you put your water down, you flipped out there, and you caught a fish. How many times? A thousand times? Yeah. Five thousand times? Why are you flipping on that fish? Or why are you flipping on that spot? Or casting on it? You know they're there. There's no reason to. You know they're there. So what I learned is instead of, you know, casting on that spot, hey, I'm just going to mark it. I know they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's perfect. It is it lines up with the pattern. It, it is the perfect spot. Don't make a cast. Be surprised because if you pull up there in the tournament and you don't catch one, you're not going to waste a lot of time. Let's say, for instance, you pull up there and practice and you get five big bites. You're like, man, this is the deal. And then you stay there five hours the next day and you don't catch but one fish. Right. You know, that's happened to me a million times. And what I learned is I was like, you know what? If I If I put it outside my head and say, okay, I pull up there and I don't catch one in the tournament, fine. I'll just leave in five minutes. But if I pull up there and catch a few of them, great. I probably would have accidentally caught them in practice, and then I wouldn't have caught those fish. So the more you can pay attention to that, it really make you more successful too. Instead of just going and hammering every spot and trying to catch one here and one there, if you see a spot and you know it's a good one, don't fish it until the tournament. So that's, I mean, that's more of like a, like a fisherman's, intuitive sense but also more of like a just a mental thing right mm-hmm. I it mean, is. you got to trick yourself a little bit yeah it, because we overanalyze as fishermen we overanalyze everything should this should this soft plastic have purple flake or red flake or pink flake or whatever flake mm-hmm. it's green pumpkin it doesn't matter if it's green pumpkin purple green pumpkin red green pumpkin blue does they're going to eat it if it's green pumpkin the only th- time that you really got to change is if it's green pumpkin or you change it to white or like a massive color change. It, have I seen it matter a little bit in, in like extremely rare situations, but we always overanalyze as anglers and we do the exact same thing when we're on fishing spots too. Yeah. I feel like, you know, there's, there's two points to that is like, as anglers, a lot of us and myself, especially you, we almost live by this textbook where if, you know, it's either black or white, like if they're not doing this and they got to do that, and if they're not doing that, then like, they're not there, which really, you know, fish have their, a mind of their own. Uh, and then there's this, the conversation of color where there's, there's people you hear that swear by like exactly what you're saying, right? It's got to have blue flake, mm. you know, it's got to have whatever other color. And then there's people that are really successful, just as successful as those people are, they get really big with their colors, that only stick to a green pumpkin, mm. a white, and a black and blue, and that's all they'll throw, and they're just as successful. And it, it's such a – and I think it comes back to the point we just talked about where it's it's literally a mental thing. I think if as long as you're presenting that bait the way it's supposed to be presented and the fish are there, they're, op- they're opportunistic feeders. I feel like they're – they're going to eat or let you at least know that they're there. Uh, oh, yeah. what's, your, what's your take on that whole color grand scheme dilemma? Uh, I used to be like one of those guys that I had like, 
like 50 shades of gray, you know, like I had a ton of different colors of one particular color. Uh, but now I'm probably the kind of guy that, uh, I'll have a one gallon Ziploc bag and I'll throw like 10 different colors of rage bugs in there and I'll just grab whichever one is comes next. Um, that maybe they're all green pumpkin or some shade of green pumpkin or some shade of watermelon or some shade of black and blue. You know, is there situations where black blue flake is better than solid black? Yeah. If you need a little flake, I guess. Uh, but nine times out of 10, a black bait, you know, is going to be just fine too. Uh, there's certain situations where if you're in extremely clear water, uh, it might matter a little bit as far as flake color or shade color or whatever. But, uh, but no, I, I don't really pay attention to that stuff, to be honest. I, I think it's way more important to, A, the technique. Is it a wacky rig? Is it a, is it a bait that's falling slow, a bait that's falling fast? Is it, uh, those kind of dynamics are way more important than the actual color of the bait. Right. Okay. I, I think to add a little context to this, is, you know, Joe's got a question here too. Um, what kind of fisherman do you consider yourself? Power, finesse, electronics, bank beater, et cetera? I don't know. I had to, I actually had somebody ask me that exact same question today. They said, what would my number one, like, what could I take to the table that I could beat everybody with? And, and I don't have the answer to that. I don't have one thing that I'm just like, this is me. Um, my least favorite technique in the whole world is flipping, and I won a tournament in 2019 flipping. So I just, I, I, I guess if you want to call me anything, I'm the guy that has 18 rods on his deck and I'm willing to do anything to catch a bass. Junk fisherman. Um, I'm a super junk fisherman. Um, I, I would say I lean more finesse though. Uh, I, I'm super comfortable. I mean, I caught three of my five pounders uh, last week at uh, St. Lawrence on five pound line. Um, I'm not afraid to go to four or five, six pound line at all. Like I've caught, I caught, I fished the Forestwood Cup at Lake Murray with four pound test. And I think it actually made a humongous difference because nobody was catching where I was and I was the only one catching them. Is it really sketchy and scary to catch a fish on four pound line in the biggest tournament of your life? <laughs> yes. Uh, but you can't win it if you don't hook them. And that's my mentality. I'm the same way when I'm fishing docks. I'll throw over all the cables and all the docks and everything that I got to throw over to catch a bass, and I'll figure out how to get them out eventually. Or I don't. Otherwise, I don't get that bite. So you can't be scared. Um, But that's just just always been my mentality is, like, I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, so this is actually a really good point because – uh, our buddy, you know, Andrew fished with him last weekend. I traveled the the Northern Opens with him. Uh, our buddy Destin and Mary, and we were talking about this because we heard some chatter at the ramp of people saying, "He goes, I think I need to go down to six pound test. I think those smallmouth are seeing my eight pound." When really the whole idea behind your their pound test is those smallmouth can't really see your line. No, no. You're using twenty pound test, they can't see your line. No. It's and Andrew's talked about this. Uh, you know, uh, Andrew Full. Uh, I keep referencing both of you. Right here. <laughs> uh, it's not whether they can see your line or not is when it comes to the importance of line size. It is. It comes down to how your bait acts with that line size. The thicker the line size you have, the less action on the bait you're going to have. When you go down in line size, 
the faster your rate of fall, the, you know, the more lifelike your bait is going to look in the water, which That's is why true. Andrew here, Andrew Upshaw here was saying four pound test was probably because it just made those fish commit better because your bait had more lifelike action. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, that you didn't mention that it absolutely is a deal is your line actually makes noise under the water too. The more you drag your line under the water, the bigger the pound test makes more noise and moves more water. The smaller your line diameter, it moves less water. It's a lot thinner. And uh, that is, uh, that, that's a big deal. And Joe just said he caught 40 pounds on 15 pound test. Hey, hats off to y'all guys. Where I was fishing, uh, I, I couldn't do that. Um, it, it just wasn't. I, I just couldn't get bites. I mean, I literally at one point where I caught the five and a half, one of the five and a half on five pound line, I saw that fish and I dropped on it for five minutes, five minutes with eight pound test, drop, 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 let it sit in front of it the whole time. And when I switched over to five, first drop, ate it. I mean, I, I'm not a scientist and, and I dang sure didn't weigh in 40 pounds. Uh, but, uh, it definitely where I was fishing and the situation where I was at, it made a difference. And, and there's been situations where it absolutely worked, no doubt. Um, so, I mean, it just, you just got to keep an open mind. You got to fish what you're confident in. In that situation, I was more confident in, in five, unfortunately. It's, it's an interesting equation. So like, obviously, you know, you were catching yours on five pound test, you know, Joe, at St. Lawrence was catching on 15 pound test. He's throwing a, a bait casting setup. It, it's it's interesting to see what fish will commit when and you know timing, you know, timing what they say timing is everything. And, you know, and this circles back to a question here from Jordan McClaire. Uh, and it's talking about what about fish that you can see on the graph that you throw the kitchen sink at and you can't get to bite. And you know, there's some people in these in that equation that say, well, they, they they're probably not bass. Well, there's, there's times where I've seen guys go and they drop their their camera down if they have like an aquavie or something, and they are bass, mm-hmm. but they won't commit. And most people say, well, bass are bass are dumb. A bass is a bass. They're not going to, you know, they're going to eat what's in front of you. But there are occasions where they're not going to eat, or at least they won't eat for what you're doing. When you find a situation like that, like every other angler has been presented with, what is your approach? Do you just leave those fish to go find biting fish, or do you – you know, put your head to the grindstone and try to figure out a way to catch them. Well, it just kind of depends. You know, live scope has really taught us that there's way more fish down there than we ever knew. Um, and sometimes it even teaches us there's way less fish down there than we ever thought. You know, sometimes we're like, man, there's got to be a thousand of them there and there's like 25. But, you know, like it, it really helps kind of teach you how these fish relate, how they set up and things like that. And in this situation of trying to figure out, you know, should you stay or should you go? I mean, it all depends on how they react to my bait. If I think that they're reacting and they're just not eating, I'm going to stay there longer. If they're just down there and they don't want anything to do with my stuff, I'm out. Because you're not going to trick that fish. It's If it is constantly turning away from no matter what you're throwing, you're not going to trick it. Uh, I always go to greener pastures in that situation. But if I see them reacting, if I see them chasing it, maybe then your color's off. Maybe then your technique is off. 
maybe you should throw a slower sinking bait or a faster sinking bait, whatever it may be. If you pay attention to those couple things, it really makes a difference. And Joe, actually, I was on the lake. I was out there around uh, uh, Galoo Island uh, in that area and on the, the northern part of the lake around Canada. I wasn't in the river very much until uh, the second day. And, you know, it's funny, you know, talk about making decisions and and, and that kind of stuff. It, Joe kind of reminded me of something. Um, I've never been to St. Lawrence River until this particular tournament. Not, not one single time I showed up and started fishing. I didn't get info. I just went fishing. And, you know, I, I knew I was kind of behind the eight ball to a certain level. I knew I wasn't going to have all the best spots, and I didn't know all these little secret rock piles. I'd kind of done a little bit of research, but not a lot. And I found a spot in the river that I thought I could catch 20 pounds a day, but I didn't go there because I found a place in the lake that I thought I could catch 25 pounds a day. And, you know, I, I don't know the best term for this, but I was not swinging for 40th place. That's not why I was there. Should I have? Would I have finished better and caught 20 pounds? Yeah, because Matt Pangrak caught him on that spot. And and I didn't give it to him. He found it too. We both found the literal exact same stretch on the St. Lawrence River, the exact same drift, like 2AT, and he got 20 pounds a day off of it. I had, I legitimately had the chance to uh, catch 25 pounds a day. I had them on the first day, and I had them on the second day. And, you know, I had some unfortunate things happen. I lost some fish. I lost some fish on the 8-pound test. I lost some fish on 10-pound test. It, I didn't. I broke off, like, one on five, but I just jumped off some. I had some pull off. You know, I missed some with my hand, and they pulled off. You know, I weighed in two two-pounders on day one and three five-pounders. On day two, I weighed in one two-pounder, a six-pounder, or one almost seven, and a five-pounder. I mean, when I caught one, they were a five-plus-pound fish. And I, if I could land everything, I was at 25-pound day average. And I could not have done that in the river. Not at all. Not even close. So, I mean, talk about taking some chances and swinging for the fence. I probably swung a little bit too hard, but I still have done the same thing again. That, that's that's pretty, really yeah, pretty much what you boil it down to. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. I think we had one more question here, uh, and then we'll get into – we'll start wrapping things up. Uh, Kevin Gagne, I'm probably butchering his last name, but he asked what <laughs> he asked if you ever ask yourself what would Panger do. I don't know if this is an inside joke or not. <laughs> what would Panger do? You know – I, I know what Panger would do. I'm going to throw a drop shot. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, I'm going to throw a drop shot. Or, and there may be a wacky rig. No, Maybe I'm in the same boat as Panger. <laughs> Dude, Panger's a great uh, finesse. I actually think he's a better finesse fisherman than me. Um, and it's just, you know, yeah. I Sometimes I, I don't really have to ask too much. But, uh, yeah, I know. I pretty much know how he's going to fish. I And just like Lake Norman. You know, I practiced a few more days than he did, and I knew before he got here this would be a lake that fit him, and I think he'll do really well here because this fits him to a T. The way you're going to catch spotted bass here, you got to use your live scope. You got to, you know, you're catching suspended fish. 
it'll do really great. Sweet. So. Hopefully he does. Oh, and yeah, he'll do good. Yeah, great finish at St. Lawrence. He's rolling good for the points. for. Or or yeah. have another Iconelli meltdown like he had at Onata, which if he does that again, <laughs> I'm going to end up having to film that one. So. <laughs> yeah, that and if he keeps his uh keeps his prop intact on like the Oh my gosh. Too. He he had a he had kind of a nightmare situation. For him to actually pull it out like he did at St. Lawrence, I was very impressed. Uh I mean between his uh shift actuator and his prop situation, his cavitation plate and just him being who he is, I, I mean he's just He's a hundred miles an hour in every direction. I just he just does this all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I, mean, he's, I feel that. Yeah, I mean he's funny. <laughs> um, if he's still in the room, it, it was actually pretty funny when we got to practice with each other that Sunday, and I, I I got the vibe of that when his shift actuator went out, and we finally got the motor to start running, and uh, we were going back towards the ramp. And he goes, he goes, I might have to fish all weekend with my motor on the whole day. <laughs> And you can kind of see he was playing out the variables before he even got back to the ramp. It was it was funny to see, but but also shows how prepared a guy like that is. Oh yeah, but, yeah. You know, they're thinking about these things before you know the process even starts going. But yeah, you uh, gotta you have to always be ready for just about anything, especially out here, because you know. And, and but the thing is, you also you gotta always stay glass half full. If if I can leave everybody with one thing, just because bad things happen because bad things unless unless you have a horseshoe up your butt bad things are going to happen from time to time when you're on the water and it's how we react to those bad things and how we push forward past those bad things is what actually makes us better anglers you know not dwelling on a lost fish or you know a bad cast or whatever is going on in your life when you're bass fishing in a tournament you got to put everything out of your head you got to focus on the next cast, and you just got to keep just going forward and have fun too. Because let's remember why we're there is because we enjoy catching bass, and it's not always about winning first. Sometimes it's about just having fun. So, yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things for people to remind themselves when they're having such a crappy day is they're there to have fun. If you're not having fun, then what the hell are you doing there? And I know for a lot of people it's a living, but I mean, you still it's, have to have fun. Yeah, it's it comes back to that concept of why waste you know a minute of your life being miserable. You know, make sure you're enjoying the ride. Cause yeah, and I do that too. I you know I'm sitting there preaching about how you should be. Heck, I have those days where I'm just like, this is why am I here? What in the heck am I doing? Uh, your turn. Uh, <laughs> you know? And then you're like, oh, I caught one. Oh, we're all good now. We're all better. Everything's good. But. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you just you have to always, always just stay focused. And say glass half full. So. Yep. Well, dude, uh, we're obviously we're not going to keep you uh, for too long here. We got one question left, and then we'll let you go because we know you got practice and a uh, big tournament coming up for you this week. Um, and we appreciate you taking time this week to obviously get on the on the stream here with us and chat with us. We learned a lot tonight, uh, as I think a lot of the viewers and those tuning in have. Um, and our last question for you is one we ask everybody that's that's new to the show. Uh, and Andrew, I feel like we haven't asked anyone this in, in a while. Yeah, um, this is nice. It, it feels like we haven't had someone who's been new to the show in a, in a few weeks. Uh, and that is if you get to sit down and have dinner with three different individuals, have a steak, have a beer, uh, who are you going to invite and why? And like they could be 
Anybody it doesn't have to be the fishing industry. They could be alive thousand years ago. They could be alive now. Who are you going to invite and why? Well, one for sure, because I just think he's like the funniest human ever is Kevin Hart. I just think he's like, you know, I like being surrounding myself with positive, funny people. And he is absolutely both of those things. Um, man, that's a really hard question because, like, so many people. Um, yeah. This is the best part about it is we don't. Because it's on the spot. It's it's the brain pumping. Because we always get messages afterwards, you know, like, oh, I should have sent this person. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I definitely would be that person. Man, (laughs) y'all can't do that to me. Y'all can't put me on the spot like that. (laughs) We're just getting the brain turning. (laughs) Helping you out. Dirty. That's dirty. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I probably have my brother there. I mean, I just really enjoy my brother. I don't get to see him as much as I'd like to now. Uh, so it'd be nice to have a beer with him. Um, and my wife. I never get to see her anymore. I mean, <laughs> dude, I'm I'm about to be on the road for eight straight weeks. And, uh, you know, fishing on the road, you get to see your family. You know, I don't get to see my family near enough. So I'd probably have my son there with me too. So actually four. Uh, because I think my son would laugh a lot at Kevin Hart, because I do too. And <laughs> actually, we'll say number five, Tim, 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 the, Tim the Tap Man, because I think he's like the funniest YouTuber uh, slash uh, Warzone player ever. And so, and he is hilarious once again. So, I actually have five. There you go. There five you go. people. So, he's yeah. actually, I don't know if he still is. Right? So, we, we talked about this briefly offline. Yeah. And for those who have never watched it before, you should. Uh, all of Andrew's social media is down below in the description, but he had, uh, he used to stream uh, playing Call of Duty. Uh, it was like, what, like once a night or once a week at night or something like that he used to do it? Yeah, I would, I actually, there were, for a while we were doing like three to four nights a week. Um, I mean, we were doing it a lot. It was awesome. Uh, my wife actually was a big proponent of that. She pushed me really hard to kind of just open my mind a little bit. And the reason we were streaming was to help connect with the younger generation. You know, one big thing that I've always done is try to find ways to connect with young people who are aspiring anglers. And that is the perfect time to sit there and have a chat, talk to people and play a video game and not video games aren't for everybody. And that's perfectly okay. Uh, And I mean, but the thing is, is half the people in there don't even play video games. They didn't even know what was going on. All they want to do is talk fishing, and that's all we did the entire time was talk about fishing. And so uh, right now I'm kind of in a limbo because my internet's awful in East Texas. Uh, but we will be back at streaming probably this winter. Uh, I'm hoping whenever Starlink comes out, uh, Elon Musk needs to get that stuff rolling because that would make life so much better for you know a situation like mine. So. Yeah. Well, dude, uh, as we mentioned, it's a great crossover of, you know, one of the first things I asked Andrew when he joined Andy and I offline was uh, if he found crossover. And he said that he really did. And that's something that's really cool. I mean, that's another example of of truly growing the sport of fishing. Uh, And that's something that's pretty awesome. And you should be proud of because that's super creative. And I don't think literally anyone else is doing that. Uh, Nobody. Nobody is, at least at at the level of which. I was fishing and fishing, whatever. There, there are a lot of regional. You'd be surprised how many regional anglers, uh, local anglers, uh, and people who just watch bass fishing 
like to play video games. Um, you know, it's a way that we all connect in a different level. And, uh, and that's what I've always done. I've just tried to connect on people at their level. So, you know, to correlate, I was the kind of guy in high school that I didn't just sit at the same table at lunch. I just went and sat with every, just different tables every day just to kind of, you know, meander with everybody. I just like to know a little bit about everybody. And I think the same way with video games, I kind of like to hit people at different levels and, you know, just kind of see what everybody's about. So. So you're, you're not the guy like talking trash to little kids on Call of Duty. Oh no, I do that. Sometimes. <laughs> Everybody does that. You're not that guy, man. You're not that guy. Gotta <laughs> relieve stress somehow. <laughs> hey, you know what? Sometimes you gotta shoot people in the face on a video game. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, uh, I just want to say we really appreciate you you taking time out of your week this week, especially when it's you know tournament week. To uh, come on here and, and teach us all, you know, Andrew and I and all of the viewers and those obviously listening to this episode on MP3, we, we do appreciate your time and uh, obviously hope to uh, get you back on here soon and uh, hopefully have a very successful open season. All right. Thanks, guys. I really do appreciate y'all having me on and uh, I can't wait to be back. Yeah, man. Well, good luck to you and uh, Panger this week. Hope you guys give them hell and obviously we'll be uh, tuning in rooting for you. Sounds good. All right, man. Good All right, see you. All right, bye. So, Andrew, I think I think that means we need to uh, start playing Call of Duty again. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine like like a serious dangler Call of Duty stream? That would be kind of funny. But now it's seriously like his <laughs> his way of of when he was streaming because I tuned into a bunch of them because um, actually I used to be kind of like a I guess what you call a quote unquote gamer back in college. That was how I used to waste my time in the winter uh, when I didn't have work to do or whatever. And uh, so I, I did enjoy the stuff that, that Upshot was kind of coming out with and, you know, to see when you tune in the stream and he's playing Call of Duty, he would attract that crowd who like that, that video game lifestyle that would come over and watch because he's streaming, but he's also talking about fishing because you'd have these folks that subscribe to his channel because of, because obviously they follow his career um, and his skills, abilities, his knowledge, and that's a way for them to pick his brain while he's playing video games. And it's super, it's super easy to talk while you're playing video games about a random topic because it's a way where you can focus on one thing but also still have a conversation. Um, and it was a really cool way to cross them together. Uh, I think that was super creative, and I think it's something that no, like literally, as we said, no one is doing. It. Um, and that, that's a very unique way and very, I guess, 21st century way of growing the sport of fishing versus just personal selling and, you know, traditional marketing. Right. Uh, so how big props to that. Cause that, that was, that was genius. And I hope he gets his internet back to do that again. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's something we need to, to make a, a uh, call of duty and start streaming with Andrew. Uh, oh, that used to be something I used to do all the time. My buddies and I always, I was one of those kids when Fortnite was like the brand new thing, like in its inception, we were the kids playing it in college. <laughs> But uh, you got to have fun sometime, right? Yeah, you said to yeah. live a little, but dude. So, for folks tuning in, we appreciate you guys tuning in tonight. Um, so a, a heads up for Friday's episode, um, we have Buck Mallory from the NPFL coming on the show. Uh, that'll be a fun one getting him on. Um, and also, it's just uh, I don't know if we're gonna bring it up in Friday's episode, but something that we like to bring up now and we have brought up in recent, but I think something that should be brought up again. Is uh, it's 
pretty crappy to see what uh, those anglers are kind of going through with the loss of, of two anglers in the past few weeks. Two. Uh, that's one unheard of, you know, two, it's pretty crappy and it's really sad. Um, especially those families. Um, but at the same time, it's cool to see the community that the NPFL has built with seeing how the anglers have kind of come together and and not really even just NPFL, but really seeing the fishing community as a whole. Um, yeah, really, really sad, but either, you know, on the flip side to not try to be negative here, um, I'm really excited to get Buck Mallory on the show. Excited to talk to him. Uh, Andrew and I have a tournament on Saturday. It's our last yep. one for the regular season before the uh, the championship event. Um, so we're hoping for good results there. We have a video coming out tomorrow, as we mentioned in the introduction, um, of Andrew and I fishing the tournament. Um, He's going to bike on the water. Yeah. Andrew going crazy. No, he didn't, he didn't really go crazy. He uh Everyone has those moments when they're trying to skip ducks. <laughs> but uh, here's, here's one question I have. For those tuning in and uh, also for those who might be listening on MP3 or tuning into the YouTube at a later date, um, when do you guys think – it might not even matter. Uh, but when do you guys think we should be posting fishing content? Do you like it posted in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening? Let us know because, honestly, that's something that we're trying to figure out and we're kind of struggling with is times to post so that you guys can best receive our content. So uh, whether it doesn't matter, let us know to say, Hey, it literally does not matter. Or if there's a time where you prefer to watch YouTube, let us know and we'll post at those times. Um, but either way, we're just trying to best get our content out to you guys so that you guys can consume it, learn the things that we're learning. And then also watch Andrew rage at docs. So, Bailey, uh, Chris Desmore has a question up there. I don't know if you saw it. He had a question about he had problems with six-pound tests at the St. Lawrence with zebras. Went to eight-pound, but I use six-pound on Erie. He said so a little too hard, so should he go to a lighter rod because of his hook set? What do you think? Yes, but also I guess maybe it depends on the technique that you're using and how you're using it. Like, if you're using six-pound on a net rig and you're dragging over shoals, it's going to happen. But I feel like if you're dropping straight on fish with six-pound test, you're fine. Because, like, as long as you keep that line taut or even if you let that line slack, you're not going to get in those zebras as much. And if you do, it's just going to break off your weight and not your hook. Right. Well, what do and you then, think, Andrew? Yeah, I agree with that. The, I'm a big proponent of a medium-action rod but with a softer tip, especially when drop-shotting. Maybe even um, what line? Oh, you know, gamma. Well, I'm think, I think he might be asking Chris is what Paraline. Oh, I think, yeah. I mean, oh, that's the big up, thing too. Yeah, straight up. I mean, complete transparency. But Andrew and I both use gamma. So, Tatsu. Okay, sorry, Joe. We're gonna have to disagree on the uh, middle brand here. That is a no-fly zone anymore. <laughs> when when Tactical first came out, it was amazing. And it's like slowly gotten more brittle. I don't know if people aren't buying it because of the P line brand, but if you pick it up, it's it breaks super easily, unfortunately, and just can't use it anymore. But I mean, drop shotting six, five. Sometimes I'll go five. Sometimes I use seven. Sometimes I use eight. But it's all situational based. Online, uh, Chris, seven. FC sniper, 
seven all day. It's about as thin as a lot of other brands. Six. The six will be like five or four in other brands if you use FC Sniper. Um, but when you're dragging, like in a current situation, a lot of times the weight makes a difference. So if you're using a teardrop, that's going to get hung up, drag through zebra muscles and rock more. If you go to more of a cylinder style drop shot weight for dragging, it's going to bounce over it a little more and be less hung up and more resistant to getting those nicks on the line. Yeah, so uh, Joe was mentioning, it was mentioned the line or uh, time for, for videos. Um, so thank you for the input on that, Joe. Um, I kind of like that. We should do some lunchtime launches. Yeah. That's not bad. But yeah, no, seriously, dude, uh, brand, I think, really does matter. Because there's there's some lines, like, you know, in, in the general scheme of things, you know, if you're just, like, fishing grass or basic drop shotting, um, it really shouldn't matter. Um, there's some lines that absolutely suck. But when you're, like, when you're niche fishing, like, great, like, smallmouth, where you're going to be around a lot of structure, especially stuff where you're going to be expecting to lose or break off uh, certain baits or whatever have you, it's very important to be using the right equipment. Um, I think, you know, for general fishing, there's a lot of places where you can get away with, you know, using whatever, right? But I think there's fisheries where you need to have the right equipment or literally you're not going to be successful unless you get lucky. And I think the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence River are those exceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, especially when it comes to line, line, I think line is the biggest thing. Uh, I guess I should take that back. I, I correct myself. There's, I think there's a, an equation that's very important. And I think this is one that you and I have teetered with a lot this year in conversation. And we've gone back and forth and made adjustments with, and that's example, line. Me and Bailey were fun fishing on Erie back in August. and he We made a video eight. on this actually. I was using six and I don't want to quote how many fish I caught in front of Bailey. And I was like, dude, put six pound test on, you'll get bit. And I think literally your first cast after changing down to six, you got bit. Like it was almost instantly. a six pounder too. Yeah. Like instantly. And I was like, see, I yeah. told you. Like I, I do so this is actually in the video. Um, if you guys go back into our archives, literally it's just great like smallmouth fishing, like throwing a flatworm. Uh, we were literally throwing the same bait, same hook. Same size weight, same braid, line size, well, except for the leader line size. And this goes back to the point where we talked about the difference between six pound and eight pound. It's not because those fish can see the line. It's because it show it the bait can react and behave differently. It, that lighter line allows that bait to have more action than the eight pound. And like Andrew Upshaw mentioned, apparently there's noise, which is something I learned tonight. The bigger yeah, the line, the more noise and drag through the line. That, that like is wicked cool. Yeah, I think I don't see like that's so this is an interesting conversation. That's a different topic for another day. Is like so like Mark Sexton, who is a fish biologist for Berkeley, you know, designing baits with them, you know, with the whole power bait and max scent, and it's something I heard learned from him. Is like there's a small decibel range that fish can actually hear in. And I wonder if a lot of what people attribute to sound is more just vibration that they feel through their lateral line. Because he mentions how it's like that's their strongest sense beyond scent, which is a super interesting deal, especially for current fish. Um, but it's such a, it's, I mean, we're going to go down a whole other rabbit hole if we start yeah, talking about that. 
But uh, it's crazy to see how small change like that, especially summer fish. And I think you can agree that that's like the biggest time for variables to be at play versus like in early spring or late fall where they'll literally eat whatever you put in their face because it's time to eat. Um, honestly, yeah, it's, I, I know we're going into fall now, but I'm honestly looking forward to next summer already because I have some ideas of what I want to do. I'm actually going to go – Gamma makes a – touch which is a very subtle drop shot line like a super finesse line i think they make a four and a five pound test mm-hmm. so next summer when it gets real tough and grimy in the summer and i can't get it on six i'm gonna start downsizing to see how many more bites i get i don't think a lot of people do that so it's just another yeah. advantage and then becoming comfortable with it because when you're fishing four and five pound tests for five to six pound fish it can be quite uncomfortable. So, I mean, that's just something that I personally want to challenge myself to do. Yeah, and, and that's a really great point. Yeah, and, and talking about that day where uh, that's something really critical that I learned was you know, how important line size could be definitely in, you know, especially in the late summer. Because um, I've always been a proponent of throwing eight pound, didn't need to go down six pounds. If they're not going to eat eight pound, then I'm just going to move around and find fish that will eat eight pound. But really, that's not always the case. And that's to the thing I learned that day beyond just how line size can be so critical is when you're fun fishing, obviously you want to, you know, have fun. You want to catch a lot of fish. But if your goal is to learn, like my biggest goal in fishing, every time I'm out there, I have one goal is to always learn and take away one thing. And that was the biggest thing is that you need to literally, if that's your goal, you need to take the time whether maybe it's one small variable of changing your leader size, or maybe it's changing the color of a chatterbait blade you're throwing or something completely different. Something, yeah, just something either major or minor. If you're changing something to experiment, experiment while you're fun fishing, at least for it take like 30 minutes to an hour to experiment off the wall crap. And that's actually kind of crazy how much you learn when you just try to do something completely wacky. So it's, that's something I learned that day was leader line size and how critical it can be. And I'm a big proponent of six pound. If you know you're around areas that you're not going to break off, why not throw it? It might mean one extra bite that you're not going to get with eight pound. I mean, there's been days, and this is kind of wonky on my behalf. There's been days where I'm like, you know what? I know I should be getting a bit on a drop shot on this grass edge or like grass cuts or whatever. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go down to six and just to see if they'll bite it. And instantly you get bit and you're like, oh, boy, this is terrifying because I got to get them out of this grass. But on a drop shot, you get them pinned so good if you have the right hook set angle that the grass doesn't even matter because you can actually use your reel to pull those fish with the grass to you as opposed to the rod and breaking your lines. So you also have to challenge yourself in learning how to fight fish with different line sizes as well. Thank you. Well, dude, do you have anything anything left for the folks before we sign off here tonight? Um, check out our YouTube. Make sure you like and subscribe and let us know what you want to see because that's huge. The more you tell us as viewers what you guys want to see, the more we can adapt and get content out that caters to you. So that's the way we want this to be as adaptive to what the viewers want and what everybody wants to see. So let us know, please. Yeah, and I think something kind of cool. So obviously, with you know, with work, 
um, working PR for gunpowder. I get to work with some pretty badass clients at, you know, pure fishing Johnson outdoors. And, uh, one thing that, uh, my buddy over at Johnson outdoors, huge shout out to Luke Lovrick is, uh, coming soon. We're going to have a buttload of hummingbird and Dakota hats that we're going to be able to give away to viewers on Monday night lives. Uh, so if you guys keep tuning in, um, coming here soon, we'll be able to start picking winners to, win some pretty sweet merch. Um, it'll be shipped your way by just, just tune it in. We'll pick a random winner. We'll probably make like a rule here, but it'd be super simple. But uh, either way, we love when you guys tune in, especially the live sessions, because it, you guys think of stuff that Andrew and I don't think of in the time, make points that we don't think of in the time. Um, and that, like, it helps us learn. Hopefully it helps you guys learn. And obviously, you know, that's the serious angler brand. So we appreciate you guys when you guys do that. And obviously we want to give back. Uh, we are in the, speaking on that. We are in the midst of trying to get our you know our sponsor team, those who are affiliated with the podcast, prepared for 2022. And one of the biggest proponents we have is giving back to you guys. Um, so keep sticking with us, and hopefully we'll have some pretty damn cool stuff to give away to you guys in 2022. Uh, we have some we have some pretty lofty goals for for this brand and where we're going to take things. And uh, you guys are a big proponent and on the forefront of that. So. We appreciate you guys and uh, look out for that video tomorrow. Uh, obviously, we'll have a show this week with Buck Mallory. Deacon's got an episode in the works. And we will see you guys next time. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.